Hello, and welcome to Conjuration Week. For those of you who are magically impaired, Conjuration is the school of magic devoted to summoning things, as well as the school of magic devoted to the creation of raw material. Where once there was nothing, Conjuration experts can make something. It's the school of choice for demoniacs and devil worshippers of all sorts, as it allows them to bring the objects of their devotion into the world, either as servants or as masters. It's also the school of choice for those who want to see magic used to feed the hungry and clothe the poor, but, let's be honest, no one really cares about that. So what if you can make a purse of endless gold? I can buy ladders, split them apart, and sell ten-foot poles, and I'll have infinite money too. No, the real allure and sex appeal of Conjuration comes from its ability to summon outsiders to do your bidding. But we'll talk about that later. Right now, it's time for a review. As we're wrapping up Conjuration Week, I decided to take a look at a couple of third-party projects which tangentially relate to Conjuration, as they both have something to do with magic. Up first is a little PDF you can get for only $1.50 at DriveThruRPG called Ars Metamagica, which comes to us from Spares Magna Games, courtesy of author Mark L. Chance. Unfortunately, Ars Metamagica looks a lot like a product that would cost $1.50. The pages are all black and white, the art, which is fairly scarce, is also fairly cruddy, and the large print, lousy font choices, and unusual flow of the texts just make the whole thing look rough, amateurish, and more empty than, than it actually is. Uh, since the PDF only comprises of 13 pages, and three of those are dedicated to the cover, table of contents, and open game license, we're left with 10 pages to describe an alternate metamagic system that replaces metamagic feats with metamagic check mechanic, and wows us with specific recommendations uh, about modifying class features, spells, and other rules impacted by Ars Metamagica, five new feats that let the casters dig deeper into the metamagic arts, uh, two new traits for casters with an affinity for the metamagic arts, and a new type of metamagic rod that works with rather than replaces the metamagic system. That's a quote from the item's description, by the way. Uh, now that's a lot to cover in just 10 pages, so let's get started. After blowing past the combined table of contents and credits page, uh, which shows us a remarkable list of playtesters, proofreaders, and folks who made valuable suggestions which contributed to the work as a whole, as well as a little box with per all the pertinent information about the copyright and intellectual property in this book, uh, as well as all those other sort of cover your bases things, we end up with an introduction written by the author explaining his motivation behind creating this dread tome. Personally, I found the introduction to be well written, concise, and it did a good job of getting me excited for the content to follow. That said, I more or less disagree with the author's assertion that metamagic feats are underutilized, of only limited usefulness, and are something that most players shy away from. The reason being that in my experience, both as a player and a DM, reflects something very different. Uh, I've seen dedicated casters take and utilize metamagic feats time and time again, and I have found fond memories of them in campaigns. Uh, and while admittedly some metamagic feats aren't going to appeal all that strongly to players on the basis of having limited utility, uh, a large spell, for example, uh, I can attest to never having actually seen a large spell used at the table, but I doubt you'll find too many people who play dedicated casters who won't recommend the excellent heightened spell feat as one of the best long-term investments a mage can make. And many of us have personal attachments to one or more other metamagic feats. I personally have a soft spot for Quicken Spell, while I know that Alex has championed at least the theory of the Still Spell. Um, that being said, he goes on to make a very fair point that metamagic rods significantly detract from the appeal of metamagic feats, and that characters created at high levels might opt for metamagic rods instead of taking the feat. Uh, his conclusion that something called Magic Item Shop Syndrome which, explains, which he explains in a footnote to mean the sense of entitlement players have in feeling that because they have gold or another resource equal to the value of a thing, that they should be able to just sort of get that thing, might cause some players to spurn metamagic uh, feats in favor of later acquiring those rods when they have the means to do so. Um, so that, that may also be a fair point. Uh, overall, uh, though I feel that I need to clearly state up front that... Uh, that his assertion that the majority of players feel that metamagic is just a waste of a feat, I think it's off the mark. So can I be objective in reviewing a product whose purpose is to solve a problem I don't really believe is a problem? Uh, well, I'll just have to try my best. After the introduction, the book introduces us to the art of metamagic. Firstly, with a quick introduction to the idea of featless metamagic, which every caster just sort of has, um, 
And at the same time, we get our first whiff of mechanics, as a sidebar explains to us how to find DC modifiers for metamagic arts. Ultimately, this is quite useful to anyone who wanting to use the alternate metamagic system, uh, though at this point in the book we couldn't possibly know why, and in a vacuum the sidebar is confusing and uh, a little bit worrisome as it's talking about uh, adding DC modification to uh, to spells and, and positive numbers for, for something you get for free. Uh, so it's a little bit off-putting up front. Uh, next, they outline the steps for using the new mechanic. Uh, step one, you get to choose your metamagic arts. Uh, and this opens by telling us to consult their table of metamagic arts, which consists of 24 different arts, each bearing the same name as an existing metamagic feat. The table also includes information on something called a DC modifier. Uh, reading along, we still don't know what this is yet, but we'll get there. Uh, we do know how to calculate it, though, so that's useful. Uh, and the level requirement for learning the, uh, the metamagic feat is also on the table. Uh, then, then they stop after the, uh, the table uh, to explain to us that, uh, that they will be using some, some terms and what those terms mean. For, for the record, those of you who didn't know what a spontaneous caster was will find this, uh, this break from the action useful, but, uh, but otherwise it, it's not all that helpful in, in understanding the, uh, the text. And uh, if they were going to do it at all, they should have done it at the beginning instead of now in the middle of explaining their, uh, their key mechanic. Uh, so anyway, after they, uh, they tell you about their, uh, their complicated terms, uh, you, they tell you how many metamagic arts you get, and it suddenly becomes clear why the table includes 24 arts instead of the, uh, the normal 9 you get in the core rulebook. Uh, and why they tell you how to calculate the DC adjustment of a metamagic feat to convert it into a metamagic art. As in order to learn the full amount of metamagic arts you're entitled to, at a minimum, you will need to look outside of the core rulebook for more metamagic feats, or you will not get the full benefit. Uh, now, the table presented in Ars Metamagica includes metamagic arts derived from feats of the same name in the Advanced Player's Guide and in Gnomes of Galerion. And that, that should give you enough that most players are going to be able to still have one or two that they're not going to be able to f uh, be able to acquire by the end of the game. So you want about 24. Uh, luckily, with the handy-dandy sidebar, you can assemble your own table if you don't have Gnomes of Galerion, say, or the Advanced Player's Guide, and a, or you just want to add metamagic feats from your own favorite source. And it's not that difficult to do, with the, uh, again, with the sidebar at the beginning. So, uh, once you have the, uh, the selection available, and they tell you how many you get, uh, they go on to explain to you that metamagic arts work just like metamagic feats, except for that you don't alter the spell level, uh, spell level of the spell being cast. Also, in case it wasn't clear earlier, uh, everyone who can cast spells get metamagic arts for free. They don't have to do anything. There's no feed investment or time investment. Uh, you just, everybody gets them if you can cast spells. Uh, and you have spells per day. You don't get them ever if you have spell-like abilities. So just uh, be clear on that point. So next they go on to explain the metamagic palette, which gives the character something called palette slots, which allow the caster to choose metamagic arts he has access to when preparing or spontaneously casting his spells that day. Some arts take up more palette slots than others, as determined by the DC modifier, which we still haven't been told anything about. Basically, you get enough of these slots to prepare... Any metamagic feats you're, or any mag magic arts, sorry, that you're going to actually want to use uh, during the day. And since you can change them out every day or have unused slots that can be allocated throughout the day, this means you will pretty much never be wanting for metamagic arts available for use. So moving on, uh, from there they tell us how to apply metamagic arts. For casters who prepare their spells, they choose which arts to apply to which spells when they prepare spells. While spontaneous casters must expend a move action to apply a metamagic art from their selected palette to a spell when they cast it. While this means that every spell you cast can be altered by a metamagic without limit, and that you can apply metamagic in ways that you couldn't normally, uh, lacking an extremely powerful rod, uh, so you could say quicken all your 8th level spells. Uh, this way without incurring any additional penalty, uh, there is a reason that you might not just want to. Uh, we enter the next section, the metamagic check. This is where we really get down to the crux of their new metamagic system. In essence, while you can have as much metamagic as you want, in order to actually use that uh, magic, you have to succeed on what they're calling a metamagic check, which is based on your caster level primary casting score, 
and a miscellaneous bonus which might be provided by one or more of the five new feats in the book. Opposed by a DC ranging from 16 to 30, or even higher if you're using metamagic art which isn't listed in this book. Uh, we can also get to find out what those DC modifiers uh, refer to, finally. It turns out that they're, they're modifying the, uh, the DC on this, on this range here, and that they are not referring to any other DCs which may be associated with spells that could be altered by your metamagic, as, uh, as I must admit I was initially afraid of when I read the sidebar. Uh, so no worries there. It's just, uh, just there to help make that work a little better. So how it works is when you cast a spell, you roll the check, and if you succeed, it, it works brilliantly. You get your meta magic for free. Uh, if you fail, you suffer a series of consequences depending on how badly you fail. From simply losing the meta magic effect but keeping the spell effect, to suffering a significant amount of constitution damage, and finally to facing the dreaded fate of being fatigued and suffering as many as six points of non lethal damage uh, for those of you who sp fail spectacularly. In essence, the system means that instead of having to give up uh, more powerful spells in order to accomplish more powerful spell effects, you can, you can gamble with your health and your fatigue level in order to accomplish that same extra effect. While the odds are set up for a normal mage to suffer about a 25% chance to get zapped uh, and closer to a 50% chance to not get the metamagic effect, uh, when you uh, start seeing headbands, iune stones, tomes, and feats, and templates start moving around and uh, and being applied to characters, the odds dramatically shift in favor of the caster. Meaning that in all likelihood, he will simply have metamagic all, all the time, forever. Um, of course, um, this will make him more powerful than everybody else in the party, but if you listen to the overall philosophy of the book and decide to uh, restrict the access players have to those kinds of items and counter the magic item shop syndrome, you can control that a little bit by keeping headbands and tomes and all those, uh, those other things out of the way. Uh, one could also argue, though, that, uh, that in order to have that greater success, they have to go really far out of their way and spend a bunch of money on items they would be buying otherwise as dedicated casters and spending some of their feats that would maybe have been spent on metamagic feats earlier in order to acquire these, these improved useful feats. So I don't really think that's a particularly valid argument. Um, but finally, you yourself, as a DM who was interested in using the system, could alter the DCs for your own benefit in order to make it balance better with the, uh, with the game you're playing and run the numbers to work more practically at the table. Uh, certainly at low levels, when you first get it, it actually does balance out pretty nicely. Uh, so uh, as long as you're careful about, uh, about pursuing those, the, the numbers stack up reasonably well. Okay, but that's enough about the mechanic for now. Uh, what about all those other things the book has? The practical information on, impl on implementing the changes to the rules. Okay, so there's several pages devoted to this, mostly with advice on changing feats, spells, class features to use the new language. So instead of saying metamagic feat, they'll say metamagic art. Um, and then other things have, uh, have changed in a way that, that makes good intuitive sense. Stuff that had caused you to either occupy a higher or lower spell level. Uh, there's a handful of spells now. Instead, give a bonus or penalty to the metamagic check. So it's effectively the same. But it's been uh, it's been reworded to make sense with the new thing. So you can still use a lot of those uh, those feats and spells and things that you wouldn't have had access to if if not for that and if you didn't have the common sense to do it on your own. So it, it's kind of nice that they do this, but it feels to me like they're mostly filling space. So they do have new feats. These include a couple of feats to improve your meta magic check roll by as much as four, uh, and feats for gaining more meta magic arts and palette slots. Not really anything I didn't expect, and uh, if you were looking for the traits to blow you away, I'm, I'm afraid you'll be similarly disappointed. It's very much, so this is what the book is doing, and here's a handful of things to improve the way that functions. There's nothing really all that creative there, but it, it does support the mechanic nicely, and when you're trying to overhaul something like this, it is important that you have that kind of support structure. So... If there were no feats, it might have been more disappointing, but uh, there's really nothing there that, that should be overly excited. Now, for the new item, the new rod uh, does work somewhat differently from the uh, from the old rods. 
Now it uh, interacts in a static fashion with the meta magic check rule, uh, improving it. Um, and ultimately, uh, it, well, the, the rod is elegant now because it does work with their rule set and it you only need one item instead of a whole bunch um it it is a bit uninspired it's kind of boring and the the worst thing about it is there's only one new item in the book so i i probably would not have included the section and i might have included rules for adjusting the meta magic rods in there let's rechange all the rules so things work uh section that they already had had um so what's my ultimate conclusion well, the book has some other problems. The author uses a very informal tone throughout, which I found to be somewhat unprofessional. The layout and organization are, in my opinion, frankly atrocious. It's very confusing, that first bit where they keep breaking it up. Uh, personally, I would have formatted it so that they explained the entire mechanic and then explained how many you got and how you allocated your palette. Uh, but that's, I guess, their decision. And once you've actually read through the entire book, which doesn't take that long because it's only 10 pages of content, it's easy enough to find what you're, the information you're looking for. Uh, but it was still really annoying, and I didn't like it at all. Uh, and there was nothing that I saw throughout the entire book that made me think that this new system was any better than the mag Meta Magic Beats. I would remain unconvinced. Um, but does this mean that you shouldn't buy it? Ultimately, if you believe that metamagic feats don't work like you think they should, that the system does need overhauling, and that that you've been so over, uh, so underwhelmed that the current system you think doesn't work, uh, this book does provide a detailed and semi-supported, if somewhat haphazard and a little bit sketchy, alternative uh, um, method. And if you like uh, if you like gambling and that that sort of thing, that sort of risk element to the game, uh, this can put a lot more emphasis on the dice roll, which might make this product ideal for you. For $1.50, I might recommend giving it a once-over if if you really think you need to do something with Metamagic to change it because you hate it, your players don't like it, and you want to revitalize it. Uh, again, personally, I, I think there's nothing wrong with the Metamagic system, and, uh, and I think that the problem's largely been manufactured by the book in order to spur the new system but uh, again if you're if you're looking for something new this is an option and it's relatively cheap uh, okay so now let's talk briefly about the other book uh, i set forth to review the genius guide to 110 spell variants from super genius games courtesy of designer owen casey stevens a 10-page pdf with a cover slash intro and an OGL credits page. We're left with a whopping eight pages, though. The book contains over a hundred spell variants. What's a spell variant, you ask? Good question, as it's the whole point of this book. Luckily for us, the introduction, which was well-written, informative, and while being quite pleasantly brief, uh, does tell us uh, quite plainly that a spell variant is a spell which is heavily based off of an existing spell and then only lightly tweaked. An example might be a lightning bolt which does acid damage and was called spit acid. For the level, as well as the spells, range, components, uh, school, and and uh, saving throw information, it would all remain the same. So uh, in this case, the spell in question would be identical to Lightning Bolt in every way, except for it would do acid damage. That would be the only change. Uh, so keeping the, in mind that that's what the, uh, the intro of the book tells us that this is about, it, uh, it does bring up a, the excellent point that this is a great way to create new spells, especially when you're starting out with design work, looking at something that is uh, is already there, and then changing it to uh, to suit your uh, your vision is a really great way to sort of get started. Uh, so right now I'm uh, feeling pretty good about the book after uh, after the introduction. So we uh, we then move directly into just a ton of spell variants, which are just uh, listed alphabetically according to spell name uh, and then by spell level, and they're just sort of thrown in there. Uh, without any sort of lookup table or anything like that. Of course, the descriptions are very short, so those uh, those handy tables in something like the uh, the core rulebook where they explain the short description of the spells might very well have sufficed for the entire book, so I can see why they skipped it. So the blocks uh, themselves all tend to say things like as the spell name, except, the, uh, except for a description of the tweak effect, uh, with a handful denoting things like this has a different range or a different duration or it has a different energy descriptor. 
So upon first glance, this makes the product look unfinished and lazily done and, uh, and just like somebody was trying to save time on typing, uh, skipping out on those more traditional spell blocks. And in some cases, it's true that an entire new spell really should have been created for a lot of these effects and that this is just not, a, uh, not necessarily an adequate use of their, uh, their space and time. One a uh, one good example just right off the bat is the first level bard spell Screech, which they say works like Acid Splash, except that it does uh, except that it has the Sonic descriptor instead of the Acid descriptor, and it deals one die four points of Sonic damage, and it allows the caster to spend uses of Bardic Performance to increase the number of damage dice, and the second effect is uh, limited by his overall caster level. So that's really not that much like Acid Splash already, and uh, it's. It's very different at this point, but the uh, the real funny thing I think is the stuff that remains the same because of the uh, the way the spell works. For example, Screech is a conjuration creation spell which requires a ranged touch attack. Uh, since it's a uh, sonic effect, traditionally it should probably be like an evocation spell that offers a saving throw to reduce damage or, or more likely negate a deafen rider that doesn't exist. Um, since uh, since it doesn't have those, th this is one I think really should have been its own spell. It's very different from the base spell, and uh, and a lot of things feel really awkward about it. There's a couple of other examples like that um, throughout the book. And uh, in general, these are actually a lot of the spells I tend to like a little bit more because there's more creative work done for them. So they really kind of shine as some of the better examples of the actual work in on spells in the book. However, most of the spells, I'd say probably like 95% of them, do a good job of illustrating the proposed model for a spell variant, as outlined in the introduction. Take uh, Repair Light Damage, for example. Uh, it's like Cure Light Wounds, except for, for non-living creatures, like con or for constructs and objects. It's perfect. Um, not only does this spell not really need any more explanation than it's like Cure Light Wounds, but for objects and uh, constructs, in order to uh, for people to figure out exactly what it does, it shows off a good way to uh, or a good choice for modifying spells yourself, and it, it sort of shows you that things you should be looking for when you're trying to do that is to look for an existing spell which could be modified to do something that nothing else is currently doing, and then create a spell which is close enough to do that. Now, now I realize when I say that that there is make whole, but it's not available at first level, and it's not you know if you want to repair like critical wounds then then you can't do that with make whole either so i still think that uh that that's really one of the best examples of that uh so uh that what's the deal with the book as a whole well if you're looking for a whole new spell book this one is a little rough around the edges there's numerous instances where a whole new spell would have been a lot preferable and the lack of proper spell blocks uh which tell you things like the range and saving throw and school information looks off-putting while you're going through it and can definitely make you go before you uh, before you actually want to use it. Uh, finally, if you're not actually familiar with a lot of the existing spells, it could be a huge problem for you to have to go through and say, oh, I don't actually know what you know Gravity Bow does. I have to look that up now every time I want to look at this. And there, there's a couple of other, uh, I mean, there's a lot of examples like that if you don't know the rules uh, for the spells, and that can be a lot of trouble. On the other hand, if you, uh, if you are largely familiar with the existing spells, and if your group is more relaxed about having things that are a little rough, around the edges, a little unfinished, unpolished, the uh, product actually has a lot of really cool spells and a lot of really fun ideas. Uh, there, there are a few that are, that are bad, um, but for the most part, it's good stuff. Uh, and for someone looking to create some of their own spells, this can provide a handy example of a good place to start. Uh, particularly if you, if you need to look at something to, uh, to sort of get the hang of it. Uh, so strangely, I find myself in the, in the position of recommending a genius guide, something I never thought I would end up doing. Um, but this is a pretty good, uh, pretty good book. And if you're, uh, if you're in a position where you think you can get along with something like this, I'd, I'd say it's a good buy. Uh, right now, you can get it discounted on DriveThruRPG. It's only $3.99, down from $4. And uh, just, just be aware when you're getting it that if you were looking for a whole finished spellbook, 
this isn't it so you might want to save your money for that but if, if you're just looking for a lot of new spell options this gives you quite a lot of bang for your buck all right well now it's time for a little segment we like to call best beasts it's conjuration week and since conjuration is all about summoning outsiders today's potentially cool or uncool beast is one of the all-time most popular outsiders to summon the succubus the succubus there's no doubt they're sexy it says so in their monster entry but just because something's sexy doesn't make it cool. No, the succubus is cool for a very different reason. She stands out among her peers. Most of the demons in the bestiary have weird names that you aren't going to be able to connect with any concrete image, at least not until you've been playing D&D for a while. But most everyone instantly recognizes the succubus, and what's cooler than name recognition? How about, how about being a femme fatale? Oh yes, the succubus are dangerous, all right. A clever one might lull even the most cautious of adventurers into her clutches, where he will surely perish. Sure, the succubus catches a lot of grief for being one of those eye-candy monsters. She's just there for sex appeal, right? Well, the succubus does have sex appeal, but she's turned it, that stigma into her greatest weapon. Whoever said it wasn't even easy being beautiful not didn't know about the succubus. Um, and look at their detractors. It's like mostly priests and sheltered religious people and, you know, um, monster haters. And what's uh, one sign you're cool? When uncool people complain about you all the time. Speaking of which, thanks for that. I'm not going to try to deny that succubi are a pervasive or even important part of fantasy stereotype and culture. They're big in folklore and mythology, they're big in movies and books, and of course, the number one business on the internet, Dirty Pictures, and they're big in role-playing games. But the question isn't about whether or not succubi are popular, it's about whether or not they're cool. At the end of the day, a succubus rarely amounts to all that much more than an otherworldly hooker. Like hookers, they deal primarily in matters of lust and physical gratification. Like hookers, you generally have to pay them for their services. Like hookers, fraternizing with one is embarrassing at best and downright criminal at worst. Whereas with normal hookers, you need to worry about STDs, with succubi, you have to worry about energy drain and death. Speaking of death, despite urban rumors to the contrary, I'm confident that it's relatively rare to wake up from an encounter with a hooker to find yourself in a bathtub with one less kidney than you had the night before. With succubi, even if you did have the kind of protection necessary to avoid becoming a desiccated husk from energy drain, you'll probably still wake up dead or otherwise betrayed. Succubi are little more than larger-than-life hookers. You would, in fact... You could, in fact, call them the platonic ideal of hookers, exemplars of hooking. There's nothing wrong with that, but in order to say that succubi are cool, we would then have to say, in a very real way, that hookers are cool. And while hookers are certainly popular, there's more to being cool than being popular. There's got to be a certain glamour, a certain wow factor. Hookers don't have that, even when they come with demon wings and can suck out your soul. So, what's our final opinion on succubi? To be honest, we don't have a very strong one. Uh, succubi have a place, um, largely in dirty pictures on the internet, as far as uh, as far as any of us can tell. But whatever the case, there there is a time where you might want a sexy demoness to to tempt people, um, and and that can be fine. Most gaming groups probably aren't going to be all that comfortable with going too in depth, and if you if you only treat the matter in a blasé, half-done fashion, then your succubus is very unlikely to leave a particularly strong impression. Yeah, so, unless you're really uh, willing to commit a lot to your succubus, you're going to make sure everybody's going to be comfortable with the succubus encounter, and that she's going to be really something special, then, uh, then you should probably skip it. Again, think of it if your character was going to be cool as a hooker, she might be cooler as a succubus, but uh, but apart from that, we're uh, we're we're not really have any kind of strong feeling about the succubus one way or another. So you've mastered the powers of conjuration and decided to devote your studies to the art of summoning otherworldly entities to serve your every whim. Alternatively, maybe you just decided to put your ranks in use magic device to use and have bought a wand of monster summon summon monster three. Whatever the case, when you're playing when you're playing with Summon Monster, you have a veritable smorgasbord of various critters you can call to your aid and may find yourself paralyzed with choices. In order to help that up, help clear that up, in this week's special expanded optimal options, we're going to take a look at which monsters make good summoning options and which ones aren't worth the spell slot. 
At first level, you won't be calling down anything powerful, as the best monsters available here are CR 1 half. That said, some, uh, some choices are definitely better than others. At first glance, it would seem that the two CR 1 third options, the Dire Rat and the Fire Beetle, won't be particularly powerful picks, and that assessment is entirely correct. The only thing the Dire Rat has going for it is its ability to disease foes, which won't matter in most fights. The Fire Beetle is useful for illuminating an area, but there are more effective ways of doing that. Of the remaining options, the Pony is never a good option and has worse combat ability than the Rat. Since it doesn't last long enough to ride, it's basically worthless. The Eagle can fly and gets no less than three attacks at plus three each, doing one die four per attack, making it a serious contender. Alternatively, the Riding Dog gets only one attack at plus three, but it deals one die six plus three damage and gives the dog a trip attempt, making it likely the most useful in any combat situation. If you're looking to poison your foe instead, however, you have two options, the Viper and the Poison Frog. Both of them deal one damage on a hit, and their poison does one die two con damage, but the major difference is that the Viper attacks at plus five and has a poison DC of nine, while the Frog attacks at plus three and has a DC of ten. The value then comes down to the AC and fortitude of the target, but in most cases the Viper will be the better choice. Ultimately though, with DCs that low, you're probably better off going with the Dog or the Eagle. For the most part, your options with Summon Monster 2 don't seem to improve all that much. You can immediately ignore the horse, which is no more useful than the pony was at first level. You have a somewhat wider selection of poisons now, though, and can choose between the giant spider, whose DC 14 poison deals 1 die 2 points of strength damage, and the giant centipede, whose DC 13 poison deals 1 die 3 points of dexterity damage. The spider does slightly more damage with its bite, but neither are going to be ter dealing terribly much damage, or really even hitting all that often with attack bonuses of plus 2. The Advanced Player's Guide also gives you options of summoning a Venomous Snake, whose bite requires a DC 13 save to avoid taking 1 die 2 constitution damage, although its bite does even less than the Centipedes. Um, if poison's your strategy, the Snake is probably worth it, because constitution damage will end the fight much more quickly than strength or dex damage. It is worth noting, however, that the Goblin Dog's Allergic Reaction, uh, another option, uh, the Goblin Dog, Goblin Dog's Allergic Reaction will impose a flat minus two penalty to Dexterity and Charisma on any creature that it bites that fails a DC-12 Fortitude save. As far as muscle, there are a few options. The Wolf and the Hyena seem like natural choices, as the Dog was the best at first level. However, on closer inspection, we find that the Wolf actually attacks with a lower bonus and deals less damage than the Riding Dog. While it no doubt has other features that help make up for that, they aren't the features we're looking for in a summoned creature, and should be avoided. Similarly, the hyena is basically identical to the riding dog, except that it has a slightly higher AC, something that you probably won't notice in any case. In fact, few of the creatures listed here have anything that sets them apart as really being more useful than the riding dog. One group of creatures that does, however, are the elementals. With their ability to move through their given elements, such as the earth elemental's earth, gl earth glide and the air elemental's ability to fly, they can get to a variety of places. Of course, unless you speak the appropriate elemental language, they won't make for very communica communicative scouts. The fire elemental can deal fire damage, however, and is a great way to start a blaze, which is something to consider. The earth elemental also attacks at plus six and deals one die six plus four damage per hit, making it more accurate and slightly more damaging than the riding dog, and therefore the most damage dealing option listed here. It should be noted that while the Lemure, another option at this level, does have the benefit of being practically indestructible at low levels with its damage reduction, the creature won't really be around long enough for you to care, and its offensive abilities are fairly mediocre, making this an outsider to avoid. One final thing to consider about Summon Monster 2 is that it can also be used to summon 1 die 3 creatures from the Summon Monster 1 list. This means that depending on the fight, you can choose to either have one small Earth Elemental, the best bruiser of this lot, or an average of two riding dogs, each of which is more or less the equivalent of the rest of this list. Moving on to Summon Monster 3, we really do start to see an improvement with a variety of potential candidates. If you know your target has a very low AC, you'll find it hard to get in more damage in a, more damage in a single turn than with the Leopard, who has three attacks, pounce, and can rake for two additional attacks. If all five hit, you're looking at an average damage in the high 20s. The downside, of course, is that all of the attacks must first hit, and they do so at a me they they attack at a measly plus three. Uh, unless the leopard hit leopard hits with its first three attacks, he won't get access to the other two. So this is definitely not for high fights against high AC opponents. Luckily, the aurochs come to the rescue with a gore attack at plus seven that deals a massive one die eight plus nine. 
it's not earth chattering, I know, but it's by far the most damage you'll see on a single attack from a summon monster at this level, and the high attack bonus makes it a lot more likely to hit your opponent. Similarly, if your target's AC is coming from armor, a Lantern Archon's rays will slice through him like butter, even if it is for a somewhat meager 2-6 per turn. Speaking of the Lantern Archon, he comes with some spell-like abilities you should be aware of. Need continual flame cast for any reason? Have a Lantern Archon do it for you. Need, so need to know if someone's evil? The Lantern Archon can do that too. Perhaps most importantly, the Lantern Archon has true speech, making him an excellent interpreter in case you ever find yourself stuck against the language barrier. While the Lantern Archon isn't the only creature at this level with spell-like abilities, his opposite, the Dretch, doesn't quite match up. His cause fear and stinking cloud effects are more or less combat only, and by the time you have access to third level spells, most of what you're going to be fighting won't be very impressed by either of those effects. Still, it gets three different attacks at plus four for one die four plus one each, making it passable as a melee combatant, and its DR will ensure that it doesn't die before the spell is up. The Wolverine's Rage ability makes it a powerful combatant once it gets hit. His average damage, if he hits with all three of his attacks, skyrockets to 21, and his attacks are all made at plus 6, making him somewhat more reliable than the Leopard. Not all of the animals are quite as equal as the others, though, and while there's nothing strictly wrong with the boar, the crocodile, the cheetah, the monitor lizard, the giant ant, or the ape, their numbers just don't quite add up to be as impressive, offensively, as the others. In the same way, the only reason to summon the Dire Bad is if you need your monster to fly or have blind sense, such as against invisible foes, because the numbers just can't compare with the cream of this crop. Moving on to Summon Monster 4, our options are getting a little bit bigger and a little bit more impressive. Our average CR is now up to 3, with a decent number of CR4 creatures sprinkled into the mix as well. Once again though, some are clearly better than others. If your opponent has a low enough AC to assume that all of your summoned creatures attacks are going to hit, you can't do better than the Lion, whose five attacks add up to an average damage of 37 per round, assuming they all hit. Since the last two require all of the first three hitting, there's a good chance the Lion will be doing substantially less than that. Still, with an attack bonus of plus seven, the Lion is ahead of most of the pack here. If you're less of a gambling man, you could go for the Grizzly Bear, whose average 25 and a half damage per round, the second best of the group, is only divided over three attacks, and none of which are dependent on the others though each has an attack bonus of only 6. On the other hand, if your opponent has a high AC, your best bet will likely be the Bison, with a single attack at plus 10, that still manages an average 19 damage, probably making it the most reliable damage dealer in the list. You should avoid the Dire Wolf, all of the Elementals, the Giant Wasp, the Hellhound, and the Pteranodon like the Plague, as they're all far too weak by comparison to your other options. Additionally, I'd avoid the Dire Ape, the Dire Boar, and the Rhinoceros, because while there are upsides to each of these creatures, their numbers simply leave them a little too far behind. The Ant Drone and the Giant Scorpion do surprisingly well here, each averaging over 20 damage if all of their attacks hit, although their attacks are at plus 5 and plus 6, plus having poisons. The Scorpion, especially, is of a high DC at 17, that it's conceivable that something might fail it, unlike the Ant Drone's DC 14 poison, though the Ant Drone is able to fly. Finally, there are several monsters at this level that can be used for spellcasting as well. The Hound Archon provides Magic Circle against evil, as well as all of the spells provided by the Lantern Archon from Summon Monster 3. The various methods taken as a group provide access to Acid Arrow, Blur, Glitter Dust, Gust of Wind, Pyrotechnic, Scorching Ray, Softened Earth and Stone, Stinking Cloud, and Wind Wall, assuming you know which methods to call for which spells. Of course, as with the previous level of Summon Monster, you can summon 1 die 3 creatures from the next lowest level, or 1 die 4 plus 1 from any level below. Uh, it's worth noting that 3 Aurochs, available on a lucky roll of 1 die 3, gain access to the Stampede ability. Similarly, if you're looking to hurt a giant walking pile of armor, you'll likely get more hits, and therefore more damage, out of 1 die 3 Lantern Archons firing their rays as touch attacks than you will out of a Grizzly Bear or Bison who have to deal with that armor. Summon Monster 5 is when everything changes, in that the list now contains enough outsiders to actually make it feel like it's about summoning something from another plane instead of a bunch of animals. With Chitons, Babau, uh, Bearded Devils, Azitas, and Salamanders, you know you're a real summoner when you cast this spell. Despite this, if you're looking for the creature that can do the most damage, you're again forced to look to the Lion, though this time it's of the Dire variety. If it hits with all three of its attacks, one at plus 12 and two at plus 13, and is able to rake, two more attacks at plus 13, a Dire Lion will average no less than 50 damage per turn. There's no other monster on the list that can even come close to that kind of average damage, though, again, it does require all five attacks to hit. 
The Babau, the Chitin, the Salamander, and the Zill are all capable of outputting reasonable amounts of damage, upwards of 25 on average, in the case of the Salamander, into the mid-30s. And while their attack bonuses tend to be somewhat lower than those of the Lion, dramatically so in the case of some secondary attacks, they each have other things to make up for it, like Protective Slime, Heat Auras, Unnerving Gaze, and Paralysis. If you're looking for a combatant to deal a single heavy blow against a heavily armored opponent, your two choices are the Ankylosaurus and the Woolly Rhinoceros. Of the two, there is no contest. The Ankylosaurus is the better. Its damage output is higher. It can stun opponents with a hit. Uh, with a higher AC and the same hit points, there's no reason to ever summon the Rhino. There are even more spell-like abilities flying around now than at previous levels, and most of them are coming from the Brilani Azata. With access to Blur, Charm Person, Cure Serious Wounds, Gust of Wind, Lightning Bolt, Mirror Image, and Wind Wall, and being a competent fighter both in melee and ranged combat, this monster may be the best choice, even if her average damage in combat is only 23. A couple of Lightning Bolts may well make the difference. As before, you should avoid the Elementals, as their numbers really just aren't enough to justify summoning them. Similarly, unless you're in a situation where its Infernal Wound ability is going to be particularly valuable, a Bearded Devil will rarely be worth your time. Finally, a quick look at the options for summoning multiple lower-level monsters shows us that you can now much more reliably get a stampedable number of Aurochs and have a 1 in 3 chance of getting 3 Bison, who can also stampede. And if you'll recall, we're one of the most reliable damage dealers for Summon Monster 4 in any case. Moving right along, we come predictably to Summon Monster 6. It should come as no surprise by now that the best average damage at this level is going to come from a large cat, in this case, the Dire Tiger. If it hits with all its attacks, including its two rake attacks, it will deal a whopping 78 points of damage per turn, on average. As with all the other big cats, though, two of the attacks are dependent on the first three hitting. Still, with all the attacks being made at plus 18, it's also got the highest attack bonus of any of the creatures that can be summoned by this spell, making it a top pick for raw melee power. That doesn't mean that it's the only thing worth summoning, though. The Liland's average damage is still impressive at 49 per turn, and while her attack bonuses are notably lower than the Tiger's, she can provide bardic performance for the summoner and his allies, as well as several levels of bard spellcasting, plus a handful of spell-like abilities for a surprisingly diverse skill set. The Aranez can deal out 42 points of damage per turn, on average, when attacking with her bow, and that means that she can do so from a range as well. Plus, her natural true-seeing can allow her to pierce illusions in a pinch, and she grants access to fear, minor image, and unholy blight. The Shadow Demon does notably less damage, and will only average 22 points or so each round, but his attacks are touch attacks and made it a plus 11 bonus, meaning that he's your best bet for getting around those particularly high ACs, unless, of course, those ACs are derived from Dexterity or similar. Further, he also has a range of spell-like abilities, including Deeper Darkness, Fear, Magic Jar, Telekinesis, and, importantly, Shadow Conjuration and Shadow Evocation, granting him access to a wide variety of lower-level spells. The last monster at this level with extensive spell-like abilities is the Succubus. Most people assume that anyone summoning a Succubus is up to something pervy, as we discussed before, and it's certainly true that she won't be doing much damage to your opponents with an average damage per round of 9 and unimpressive attack bonuses to boot. But her varied spell-like abilities, including Charm Monster, Detect Good, Detect Thoughts, Dominate Person, Energy Drain, Suggestion, Tongues, and Vampiric Touch, have an array of uses, and if she can convince a foe to embrace her, her Energy Drain will make quick work of them. With the possible exception of the Invisible Stalker, whose invisibility could theoretically be of value, you should avoid all the other options at this level, as their numbers are simply trifling when compared to the Dire Tiger. Their attack bonuses are lower, and their average damage is laughable by comparison. The Tiger's AC and hit points aren't bad either, so there's really no reason for you to summon, for example, a Dire Bear or an Elasmosaurus. Of course, if you think they can hit reliably, you might get more mileage out of 1-3 Dire Lions, who would, in total, average 150 damage per turn if all of them hit. Most likely, their attack bonuses will prove too low to be of value, however. This brings us inexorably to Summon Monster 7. There are no large cats available for summoning at this level, and so for once, it's not a large cat that is capable of the most damage. Instead, three different creatures are, as close as makes no difference, tied for the amount of damage they can deal. The Rock, the Fire Elemental, and the Vrock. That's Vrock with a V. It may be difficult for you to tell. All three clock in at around 50 points of damage per round, but the Vrock, with a V, damage is divided up amongst five attacks at a measly plus 13 or so bonus, while the Rock's damage, the giant bird, 
is over only three attacks, clocking in at around plus 18, and the fire elemental's damage is divided amongst only two attacks at plus 19. This gives the rock, the bird, and the fire elemental a clear advantage, though it's worth noting that as far as raw damage dealing capability, the only advantage they have over Summon Monster 6's Dire Tiger is being a little bit more reliable. Uh, on the other hand, the rock can fly, grab opponents, and drop them from dizzying heights, and it's a little more durable, too. And the fire elemental has benefits of its own as well. But are either better than 1 die 3 Dire Tigers? It's hard to say. Of course, just because the Rock and the Fire Elemental are the best sources of raw damage hardly makes them the best choice. The Bebelith, Dire Crocodile, Earth Elemental, and Mastodon all clock in pretty close, dealing 40 or more damage per turn. The Earth Elemental and the Mastodon are both heavy hitters with attack bonuses of plus 20 and plus 21, and doing their 40-odd damage over only two attacks, making them ever so slightly more reliable than the Rock and the Fire Elemental. In fact, the two are so similar that there's really no reason to ever summon the Mastodon. The Earth Elemental does slightly more damage, has slightly more hit points, and can Earth Glide. The Dire Crocodile clocks in at 47.5 damage, putting it ahead of either the Mastodon or the Earth Elemental, though its attack bonuses are a bit lower at 18. Still, with its Death Roll and Swallow Hole, plus its ability to, reason to fight reasonably well in water, there are reasons to summon one occasionally. Person though, personally, though, I think the best combatant at this level will usually be the Bebelith. It may only average 45 damage per turn, but it has the ability to rip up its target's armor, and if you're fighting an armored foe, uh, if you're fighting an armored foe, and beyond that, its rot ability requires a DC 23 fortitude save, or else the target starts taking constitution damage, which will quickly push the Bebelith's effective damage per turn through the roof. Avoid the Bone Devil, the Brachiosaurus, and the T-Rex. They just don't do enough damage and don't have enough else going for them. The Bone Devil has a few spell-like abilities, and if you really need a wall of ice right away, he might be used for that, but he's not much use otherwise. The Brachiosaurus has nothing to recommend it, and anything the T-Rex can do, the Dire Crocodile can do better. Finally, I'd like to note that the play Advanced Player's Guide provided options for summoning giants with Summon Monster, and the first such giant becomes available now with a young Frost Giant. Just to get things out of the way up front, all the options to summon giants from here through the end are bad choices. The giants are just notably weaker than the other options and are never a good choice. Do not summon them. Summon Monster 8 has notably fewer choices than the previous few levels, with only six different options, of which four are various Elder Elementals, the other two being the Barbed Devil and the Hezro. There isn't much of an increase in offensive power either, with the best bet for damage per turn being the Elder Fire Elemental at a not-so-substantial 56. His attack bonus is up to plus 23, though, which may be enough to make it competitive with 1-die-3 huge fire elementals, or better yet, Bebeliths, or 1-die-4 plus 1-dire tigers. The Barbed Devil and the Hezro do have some spell-like abilities, of course. The former has Hold Person, Major Image, Orders Wrath, Produce Flame, Pyrotechnic, Scorching Ray, and Unholy Blight. The latter has Blasphemy, Chaos Hammer, Gaseous Form, and Unholy Blight. While I'm sure they have powerful defensive abilities or something else that makes them appear here, their attack bonuses, average damage, and spell-like abilities are so unimpressive and so unappetizing that I can't imagine ever wanting to summon one. In short, with Summon Monster 8, if your target has a decent AC, go for a Fire Elemental. Otherwise, I'd recommend a troop of Bebeliths or Dire Tigers. The apex of Summon Monster spells is Summon Monster 9, and you can tell by the monsters you get access to. Now, technically speaking, the monster with the highest average damage per turn is the Ice Devil with 85, but this is somewhat misleading because only one of his five attacks has a respectable attack bonus, has a respectable attack bonus, and that's only plus 21, while the others are around 14 or so. A much better candidate for Carnage is the Globrezu, whose 80 or so damage per round may be divided amongst five attacks, but they're all made at plus 20. The Globrezu also has a handful of fairly decent offensive spell-like abilities, but while you might be tempted by his once-per-month wish, you should note that Summon Monster specifically forbids the use of spells with expensive material components. The next step down in damage is the Nalfeshni, who does about 60 per turn, but he does so with an attack bonus of plus 23 on all his attacks. Further, he has some quality offensive spells such as Call Lightning, Feeble Mind, and Greater Dispel Magic, and his Unholy Nimbus can cause problems for your foes as well. The good-aligned outsiders, the Astral Diva, the Gaily Azita, and the Trumpet Archon, tend to be lower on the damage output scale, all of them right around 55 damage per turn, with not terribly impressive attack bonuses. Their first attacks are made at plus 22 to plus 26, but from here, in all three cases, each attack is at a minus 5 penalty, meaning that some are made as little as plus 16 or plus 12. 
Uh, they make up for it with really stellar spellcasting, however. The Astral Diva prob has probably the fewest spell-like abilities, but he can still be used to plane shift and heal, giving you two high-level spells for the cost of one ninth-level slot, plus an okay combatant. The Gaily casts spells like a 13th-level Cleric in addition to a large number of spell-like abilities, and the Trumpet Archon can similarly cast spells as a 14th-level Cleric. And, of course, it's worth noting that you can also use the spell for 1 die 4 plus 1 Bebeliths, or 1 die 3 Elder Fire Elementals. Hopefully, that breakdown has helped to clarify some of the better and worse options when summoning monsters, as well as when you might pick some over others. And now, it's time for a little segment we like to call Game Mastery. Okay, so today, in honor of Conjuration Week, we're going to look at 10 outsiders with some personality to spite us up your lesser planar binding and similar spells, and make the next creature you summon much more memorable. As a word of caution, we advise that, as a GM, you consider carefully before feeding your players to Bebeleths and Baylor that they couldn't possibly have seen coming. Just a warning. Number one. Jontar, a hound archon with an encyclopedic and unhealthy knowledge of local politics throughout the mortal realms, a strong believer in power and nobility, and the rights of local lords to rule their lands absolutely and without interference from foreign kings and distant capitals. Often considered reactionary because of his belief in absolute rule for the nobility, Jontar is also commonly accused of being a radical for his negative attitudes towards the power of feudal monarchs. An impassioned and well-informed individual, Jontar is a skilled orator, but not much of a conversationalist on a personal level, always steering the conversation uncomfortably towards his own political beliefs. Number two. Ithmia is a female Brolani who draws great personal enjoyment from the admiration of others, and particularly enjoys being viewed as mysterious and all-knowing. Consequently, Ithmia often claims to have knowledge of the future and the ultimate destiny of mortals. Harboring a stronger, chaotic nature than most of her kin, Ithmia has no qualms about making up elaborate tales concerning events she couldn't possibly have any knowledge of and passing them off as truth to mortals in order to gain their respect and admiration. Number three, Groth is an oddity for an earth elemental in that he styles himself as a scholar. While not particularly more intelligent than others of his kind, Groth nonetheless possesses a great memory for details and a burning love for knowledge. As a result, Groth will often offer his services willingly to anyone in exchange for some new factoid or piece of lore, particularly involving one of the primary elements, air, water, and fire, that he is not a part of. A pacifist who abhors violence, Groth will happily lend his great strength to many causes, but will not fight unless compelled magically. Uh, 4. Rati is a cute and comely Ernez who pretends to be a succubus called Ashandri. She initially tries to flirt with and charm her foes with the goal of lulling them into a false sense of security when they resist her feminine wiles, and then when her enemies let their guard down, believing that she poses no more immediate danger to men so stout and virtuous, she cuts them down using her main strength and uh, in a feat of pure martial fiendish prowess. Um, secretly, she longs to be desired. Roddy ends up being merciful and even friendly to any character which shows a romantic interest in her. Number five, Sean, a reformed bearded devil who once served the cause of evil, converted his faith after meeting a priest of a good deity. Inspired by his new faith, the repentant devil now turns his considerable talents towards fighting wick wickedness wherever he finds it, as a street preacher. As zealous and as any televangelist, Sean com uh, comports himself with much fanfare as he wages verbal war on corruption and sin. Not one to forget his violent past, Sean still carries his tools of war ready to meet out the god's will on any who do not change their ways. While Sean can be a trustworthy if somewhat annoying ally, he is slow to trust and may be very cross with anyone who summons devils. Number 6. Nargrath. Won't tell you his real name, though he will happily introduce himself as Kin. Appearing in the guise of an astral diva, this monstrous pit fiend very occasionally answers the summoning of such holy creatures. Pretending to be a moral and upstanding individual, Kin more or less falls in with any request the summoner might have of him, even feigning compulsion for characters attempting to uh, gain a magical influence over him. At the earliest opportunity, however, Nargath reveals his nature, delighting in the look of terror on his victims' faces, and offering them one-sided deal in exchange for their lives. Because he likes to watch his victims cower, Nargath usually only answers the summons of relatively weak casters. However, Nargoth will always answer the call of any summoner who knows his real name, 
usually to attack them without mercy or threaten them into doing his bidding, perhaps revealing powers even beyond that of an ordinary pit fiend. Number seven, Os Analar. This shadow demon is intensely jealous of corporeal creatures, be they mortals, other demons, or any kind of creature that can eat, breathe, and experience life. He loathes the abyss, which he finds incredibly tedious and boring. And given the opportunity, he would spend eternity on the material plane, inhabiting the bodies of rich nobles, and generally living a life of luxury. Anyone who summons the fiend will find that in order to get him to agree to perform any services for them, they will need to provide a host for the demon to possess once the deal is complete. The more difficult or valuable the task required of them, the more rich and prestigious the vessel. While particularly small and easy tasks can probably be paid for by giving the demon any old peasant to inhabit, truly impressive tasks might require bringing him a trussed-up prince and allowing him to claim the body as his own indefinitely. Number 8. Ilvarnissa. This strikingly beautiful Lilin was once known throughout the heavens for her beautiful singing voice, but was mysteriously rendered mute after the death of one of her mortal protégés. Some say that she is cursed, while others say that she simply refuses to bring forth her voice out of shame and despair at what happened to the bard she took under her wing. Whatever the case, she has taken a particular love of music, above and beyond that of most Lilins, and will go to great lengths in order to hear a particularly fine or exotic music. Despite her condition, she still provides instruction and inspiration for musicians, providing her with a promising student who is willing to return with her to her homepage and study music under her is a sure way to win her favor. It is said that those who particularly please her are blessed with beautifully unearthly voices that make them exceptionally charming. Number nine, Prince Hakan, the Great Inferno. This Afridi warlord would normally be infuriated at being summoned by what he considers to be a backwater plane by pathetic mortals. It's not for the fact that he's currently recruiting for a major offensive against his neighbors on the elemental plane of fire. As such, he sees every summoning as an opportunity. In exchange for services rendered, those he makes packs with must agree to aid him in his bid for conquest on the plane of fire. This typically requires agreeing to a term of service in Hakan's armies, and if the summoner requests the Afridi granting him any wishes. Uh... Akan usually demands that at least one of three wishes be used for the Afridi's own benefit when he has performed the agreed-upon task, or possibly at a later specified date. Akan takes the summoner with him back to the plane of fire. Of course, he has little patience for mortals' tendency to burn in lakes of fire, and if they can't provide their own protection, he won't go out of their way to help them. And on occasion, he has been known to conscript adventurers into much longer terms of service than they had originally agreed to, uh, gang pressing them into his army. Number 10. The Hunger. This specialized Bebelith has acquired a taste not just for demons, but also for those who have souls who have been touched by demonic taint. The Hunger, as it is known in demonic circles, has learned how to tap into the magic of spells such as planar binding, and can answer the call of any spell that is intended to summon a demon, appearing in its place, usually having just consumed, or still be in the process of consuming, the creature the spell was supposed to have summoned. The Bebelith, which attempts to break free and devour all who took part in the ritual, as well as any others nearby creatures who have been infected with uh, demon demons in their past. Uh, if unable to break free, the Bebelith is extremely reluctant to work with the summoner, and will only agree to do so if it is provided with a true demon that it can eat. Thank you for that, Josh. And now... Unfortunately, that is just about it for today. We, uh, we're out of time, so we're not going to be able to do our normal seed to story. Uh, we look forward to having that next week, as well as continuing the ongoing story of John the Grinning Skull Morgan. Uh, what we do have for you, though, before we go, is our poll of the week. We've talked a lot about summoning outsiders here today, and there are a few, there are a few fantasy concepts as resonant and powerful as the idea of summoning a demon, devil, or angel and binding it to your will. If you could summon any outsider with a planar binding spell or similar, what would you summon and why? Let us know on our forum or drop us a line at arigs at necromancersonline.com or jzabak at necromancersonline.com. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you on our website and see you again next week. Bye-bye.